Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. that little pun left coast <laughs> yeah I'm in, I'm in California with a K <laughs> yeah it's almost like a different country out there isn't it and maybe uh, not always in a good uh, way <laughs> don't, don't get me started don't get me into that <laughs> okay and let's talk because about Matthew get, because we'd be, we'd be going on for hours <laughs> yeah. let's talk about Matthew <laughs> <laughs> So we have a a little bit of review before we get into the meat and potatoes tonight. So uh, why don't you start there? Yeah, I think it's good to do a little review each week and uh, uh, hit some some points, uh, major points that uh, uh, need to be made, even for our audience, if uh, they didn't uh, listen to the first uh, two uh, presentations. And uh, these points are going to be mainly over the uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5. So uh, Matthew was laying out a case for Jesus as the Messiah, which means king, uh, Jesus as 
God is building up the kingdom of heaven in his church as a universal church of both Jews and Gentiles. If you look at uh, some of those prophecies that Matthew was uh, talking about, uh, when you when, when you look at the uh, the apostles and uh, uh, referring to different prophecies, you always want to open those prophecies up, go back to them, and look at the larger contents. And in the larger contents, you always find some really fascinating stuff. So, so e- even though in some of these prophecies and stuff, Matthew in the first few lines was not describing Jesus as God, but when you get into the prophecies he's referring to, they're describing Jesus as God. They're describing Jesus as the Son of Man, uh, Jesus as uh, even Israel, and Jesus as you know the groom, and uh, of course the church is the bride. So... Jesus as God is building up the kingdom of heaven in his church as a universal church of both Jews and Gentiles. And we see that across in prophecy also about uh, this uh, uh, marriage between uh, God and the Gentiles. So he's beginning to show the new law, which is the law of conscience, as opposed to the law of rule, fear, temporal punishment for Jews only. Uh, He is not abolishing the law, uh, but because the Holy Spirit will enter the world and illuminate man's conscience in a new way, he is showing how for Christians the grace given freely of the law written in our hearts is raised to the Beatitudes through contemplating the love of the gift of the cross. And uh, I'll emphasize that when when he's talking about these things, when he's showing the Beatitudes, when he's showing these things – He's showing something that at that time, because the Holy Spirit did not enter the world in a new way yet, he's showing what we will be capable of, not what they are capable of at the moment. Because uh, a radical transformation occurred in the world Uh, before the apostles, uh, before Christ, you had a world that was missing something in, in this at the subconscious level and in, in, in the way you know uh, the way we you know love fellow man we don't even realize it that we do this but the way we love fellow man today is because of Christ and it doesn't matter if you're an atheist doesn't matter if you're a buddhist whatever it, it, it's a different world i mean before this there was the code of hanrabi and eye for an eye and there was the letter of the Mosaic Law, rule, fear, and temporal punishment, uh, because Israelites were known as a stiff-necked people, and uh, so they had to have just just these rules. And uh, and if the rule is violated, then there's punishment for violating the rule. And uh, and uh, so they were. This was a pedagogy. Uh, Paul talks about uh, the law being a pedagogy uh, of Christ, which is. Pedagogy means it's a strict schoolmaster for a child because in their thinking processes, they do not have this charity and this love. Therefore, after Christ, this, uh, when Paul talks about uh, this, his famous uh, you know, uh, chapter on charity, and he says, well, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And out of faith and charity, the greatest of these is charity. So what does he mean by this childish things? He meant the pedagogy of the law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment and choose, pedag- and choose uh, charity. 
and it's in its simplest form charity is 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 being Christ to man and we do that because as we develop in our faith and in the sacramental life we we contemplate these things and we contemplate the love of Christ and therefore you know we express this love through the holy spirit to others being Christ to man in in, in charity so uh he does not express a faith of intellectual assent, but a faith of transforming grace through becoming a new person, which begins with the baptism into the church, as we saw in chapter 2, where uh, uh, the description of Christ being baptized by John the Baptist, uh, Christ didn't need to be baptized. So, he's, so uh, Matthew is showing us what happens in our baptism where we, we see the dove like a dove, the spirit, and uh, God tells his son, this is my son of who I'm well pleased. Well, we are all sons of God in this, uh, in this imagery. And even if you go to Romans 9, you see this sonship right there where Paul is talking about the, uh, the, uh, the line of the, the Jews at the time of Abraham. And then he's talking about a spiritual line, uh, a mystical line, when he says that uh, those who are born from Isaac are of the, are, are of the promise, and they are the children of God. Uh, but those who are born of Sarah, uh, uh, Isaac was a miraculous birth because Sarah was past the age. And so our miraculous birth for us is, is baptism. So we showed how the Lord's Prayer must be understood from in the context of being in the kingdom and hope for an eternal entry in, into its fulfillment, and how in this kingdom in the Holy Mass is where we ask for our super substantial bread, which is actually the, the, the translation from the Douay Reigns Bible for that bread. And uh, we explained how this word uh, is, is something that you don't see anywhere else in Scripture. And so uh, when Jerome was uh, looking at this to translate from the Greek, and uh, he, he saw this word, and he also understood because he participated in Mass exactly what it was. So we receive our super substantial bread, or we ask for our super substantial bread right before the Holy Spirit through the ordained consecrates the Eucharist, giving to us our bread from heaven, that as the Levitical priesthood did before us in type, uh, they, they raised this bread up into the air, and this was called a heave offering, or, or even the meat offering was a heave offering to the Father, and we see the same imagery in our Mass as we ask for our super substantial bread. So, um, uh, this is done through our uh, through the head of the body, which is our High Priest Melchizedek, our mediator of the entire New Covenant, not just prayer. Uh, when the Levitical priests uh, did, those who offer the sacrifice uh, eat of the altar. So, Paul refers to this. And even in uh, his description of Christianity and our ritual, uh, that we also participate in this altar. Mm-hmm. So the first, the first point that you made is that Matthew is building a case, and I think that's a very good way of describing it, Luke. Because it's a very good way of differentiating Matthew's gospel with from 
say Luke's or Mark's, is that Matthew isn't giving simply a narration. He's building a case. He's telling us who the Christ is. And it's important to remember that Christ is not a name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. In fact, in the chapter 9 prophecy in the book of Daniel, in the Douay Rings version of the Bible, it actually says the Christ will be cut down when he does not possess the city. So Jesus would have been known simply as Jesus of Nazareth, just as Mary of Bethany was differentiated from Mary of Magdala. The second point is just as important. When Jesus said, I will write my law on their hearts, echoing the prophecies made by God in the Old Testament, he isn't signifying a removal of, visible, of the visible authority. Quite the contrary, Jesus is signal, signaling that God's true desire is mercy, not sacrifice. So we're kind of moving the conversation or moving the emphasis from justice to mercy. And we see that in the in the woman who is accused of adultery. We've already touched on this earlier, how the law stated that she should be stoned, but Jesus preferred to extend her mercy over justice. Uh, Luke's statement about intellectual assent alone, as opposed to transforming grace, is always very, also very important. And we see this theme throughout Matthew's gospel uh, in themes such as the seed bearing good fruit. And uh, Melchizedek, well, that's a subject I want to get into in depth at some other time. Um, it, it, he's important to bring up as the Last Supper kind of winds the Passover and the Levitical sacrifice, which are temporal things, into the eternal sacrifice, which is foreshadowed by Melchizedek in in uh, in Genesis 6:14. So, for those of you who haven't read. Go through the first six chapters of Genesis, and you'll see this guy Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere. He just appears out of nowhere, and he's offering bread and wine, and it's kind of a, Luke, kind of a preview of coming attractions, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, it's what, they, what the priest offers, uh, that offering is related to the actual priesthood. And since he's a high priest, you can't have a high priesthood without a subordinate priesthood. So our priests who offer what Melchizedek offered, but a glorified offering, the true body and blood of Christ, because we always move from type to heavenly reality, is the priesthood under Melchizedek. The true Melchizedek is, is Christ. Right. Because let's remember the Melchizedek of Genesis is also called the king of Salem. Okay? So he is priest and king. Who does that sound like a foreshadowing of? <laughs> <laughs> Our new king of David and priest and high priest right. in the sacramental kingdom. So we left off at the at the Last Supper, and that was uh, right around Matthew uh, 6, uh, 12. And so we're going to start in right about Matthew 6, 16. So we're we're going to read this whole this whole book, and uh, for our audiences, if you're just coming in, if if, if you were around the last uh, two presentations, we are reading through you know, the whole book, and we're going after we read, we're giving uh, insights on each little area here, and through uh, 
the end of six, going into seven and eight, uh, this is this is just a bunch of virtues and uh, ways that uh, we, we are called to live as Christians. And so, uh, this uh, where we're at is uh, when, when Christ is describing proper fasting, and we read, and when you fast, be not as the hypocrites, sad. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Amen, I say to you, they have received the reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not to men to fast, but to thy Father who is in secret, and thy Father who seeth in secret will repay thee. Lay not up to yourselves treasures on earth, where the rust and moth consume, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up to yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither the rust nor moth doth consume, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where thy treasure is, there is also the heart. So these are pretty self-explanatory, but we'll add some context here. the Jews at private fast on Mondays and Thursdays, and the early Christians fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. And you know these these were traditions in the church. And uh, so Jews had a communal fasting on Yom Kippur, which is interesting because uh, we're talking about Melchizedek uh, in the Book of Hebrews. Uh, uh, this shows us a, a, the spiritual reality of Yom Kippur. Uh, Jesus is the head of the body and high priest who has taken his own blood as a sacrifice to the Father into the Holy of Holies. Yom Kippur is one of the spiritual visuals we have for the Holy Mass. And we consider the spiritual reality of Jesus as the head of an entire body. So spiritually, we enter this uh, Holy of Holies uh, during Mass. And Jesus first teaches the Beatitudes then he shows the differences between humility and fasting and the fasting of the Pharisees who, who did it in a legalistic manner, showing their true colors as one uh, who are focused less on God, but more on self and how they're perceived. They were, they were shallow, basically, you know, uh, extroverted. (laughs) So, so Jesus is showing that, uh, a true fast is directed toward God, not man. And Jesus then shows more understanding of the focus on eternal things, not how you are being perceived or, material, uh, or materialistic things, telling us that we should focus on heavenly treasures instead of earthly ones. And this, is, this is preparation for our souls. Our, our, our treasures are, are a virtuous life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting um Jesus railed against hypocrisy more than any other sin in the New Testament. And when you go back and you look at the original Greek, the word that is translated into hypocrite is a word that actually conveys an actor playing a role, like a, like a <laughs> movie actor playing a part. That's what the word actually means. And uh, it's conveyed in this sense of uh, someone who looks like a Christian, seems like a Christian, um, in fact, uh, you know, it's conveyed to us in the New Testament as, as a, a whitewashed tomb. Uh, looks 
it has all the appearance of, of cleanness and holiness on the outside, but inside it's filled with uh, dead man's bones. Some of these other points that Luke has made here are very important, and it speaks directly to this idea of cognitive dissonance that we've all spoke, spoke of. So for those who are unfamiliar with the term cognitive dissonance, is a stress caused in the mind by trying to hold two contradictory views at once. And this psychological condition manifests itself in anger that results from this internal conflict. And the Pharisees absolutely expressed it, and they were condemned for it. Their stubborn, prideful desire to be right and above Jesus reigned smack into the wall of what their own eyes were seeing and their confounded minds were hearing. So they wanted to believe that he wasn't the Son of God, he wasn't the Messiah, but the miracles and the visuals that they were seeing right in front of their eyes, uh, you know, confounded them. So in the end, there were only two ways to respond to this. You either accept the truth and conform to it, or you make war with it to your own detriment. Now, how does that relate to our discussion? Well, right here, the gospel, Matthew so keenly cuts to the marrow that the Protestant is left with exactly this conflict, and Luke has already alluded to it. Protestants posit a scheme where we're saved by intellectual assent. But this intellectual assent they call faith. Luke, on the other hand, proposes a process of transformation by grace, grace that we must participate in. And Protestants say, no, 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 our actions have nothing to do with our salvation. Yet right here we see that our secret actions, such as fasting, are seen in heaven, stored in heaven, and rewarded in heaven. So it couldn't be any more clear. Jesus wasn't condemning works, but he was condemning works that were performed in a self-serving, hypocritical way. I also like the, the emphasis on Yom Kippur, because Yom Kippur is something that comes up over and over and over again. It's fascinating, because it, it was a day of atonement, and as Lucas pointed out, it points forward to the Mass. But larger than that, it also foreshadowed many historical events, some good, some bad in the history of the church. It, it foreshadowed the profanation of that which is holy. Pompey came to power by a siege on Jerusalem in Yom Kippur in 63 BC. And Herod the Great is said by Josephus the historian as coming to power 27 years later on the same day, that is Yom Kippur in 36 BC. This is why we know that Herod the Great died in 1 BC. The angel Gabriel also appeared to Zechariah in the temple on Yom Kippur. And that year, as in this one, 2023, Yom Kippur fell on September 25th. Jesus was conceived six months later on March 25th and born nine months after that on December 25th. So it's interesting, Luke, that we see this theme of Yom Kippur come up over and over and over again. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's pretty pretty fascinating. The the, uh, the when we talked about works, we probably should emphasize again for those who have not uh, uh, been involved with our last presentations. Catholics do not have a works based salvation. 
we have a transforming grace-based salvation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't emphasize this enough, emphasize this enough, and I'll do it in a, in a way just to simplify things. Paul never said that the Ten Commandments are not necessary. Paul never said the religion and ritual that is all across the New Testament is not necessary. Paul never said obedience to the faith is not necessary. Paul showed us that we should be obedient to the prelates of the church. There's only one church Paul would even say that we should be obedient to. Anything else outside of that is heresy. And this is the church that James referred to at the Council of Jerusalem when he quoted Amos uh, saying that the uh, the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church for both Jews and Gentiles. So the only church is the one that will is, has the capability of being sent by God. Therefore, Paul says, how can one preach unless he is sent? Well, he can only be sent in the true nature of, of the Christianity God established by the reestablished kingdom of David. And Paul would never have called the church the pillar of foundation and truth if it wasn't the reestablished kingdom of David. He would never have said that uh, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places through the church. In other words, the church teaches the angels even. And he says, we have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem. Well, what is this Mount Zion in Isaiah? It's where we go to in order to learn the wisdom of God. So when he says, obey your prelates, he's talking about prelates only in the universal church established by God. And anything outside of that is heresy. And this sounds like strong words, but you know, you, uh, you know, the greatest love is to bring somebody from error to truth. And and so these works and uh, you know I've said this a thousand times. If Paul's not referring to any of those as works that you know uh, are, are not to be kept, then what are uh, what is this one work that Paul is referring to? Well, it's the ceremonial and the uh, the the ritual works of the Mosaic Law, which were given. Uh, for the purpose of a pedagogy, the strict schoolmaster for a child, because the Jews, uh, after they made the golden calf, uh, this was actually they were given the Ten Commandments. Then they are told to make the, the then uh, they said they wanted to make this golden calf after the commandments, and they worshipped it, and that included this this phrase about the and they played. In other words, they even had orgies in front of this golden calf. So God's looking at this, and he, he's uh, uh, and after after he sees this, he then puts on them these laws, where even included in the laws is to for them to sacrifice to him what they once worshipped in Egypt, this pedagogy. So this is the yeah. only works. Paul refers to as something that we are not responsible for. And this is what Paul refers to when he talks about the, the uh, you're saved by faith, not works that anybody would boast. Who's right. boasting? 
the baptized Pharisees who were boasting about keeping these this ritual law at the same time they were practicing the Christian faith in the church. We know right. they're practicing the Christian faith because they were right there at the Council of Jerusalem. Yeah, it sounds like a conflict, but it's really not. When Paul says, uh, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, it is not of works lest any man should boast. Uh, he, he is not, so, so you have to think about it in terms of this. God commands an action, then God gives the grace to enable that action, and then he's going to hold us accountable to that action. But Jesus said, when you do what it is that you are commanded to do, say nothing more than we are unworthy, unprofitable servants. We've only done what we were told to do. So this idea of boasting, it's not as if people in the Old Testament, there were no people in the Old Testament that were saved under the Old Testament law. Some of them were because they were grafted into the New Testament by faith. So rather than putting the faith in their works of the of the uh, you know, the works of the law, it is their faith that saved them. Their faith and their humility and their trust. But when God, like for instance, Luke, when God parted the Red Sea, he still made them cross. <laughs> okay? <laughs> they still had to yep. cross the, they still had to cross the sea. Uh, and, and if they commanded, and, and if they didn't do what they, they commanded, what God commanded for them to cross the sea, well, they'd have been swallowed up like the Egyptians were when, when you know, the Red Sea was closed back. So commands, God enables, and then God holds accountable. Well, what reason is there for us to boast? What, that, what of our worth or our value or our effort comes from that, Luke? None, none of it. The grace from, from, comes from God. The command comes from God. The ability to be obedient comes from God. So what reason is there for us to boast? And this is what Paul talks about. There is no reason for us to boast because it's God doing all the work. But God's grace is synergistic, which means we can cooperate with it, rather than monergistic, which means it's, you know, our free will is. And this is kind of the argument of the Calvinists is that, you know, grace is monergistic. It's irresistible. Well, then that takes free will and throws it out the window, doesn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, and uh, if, uh, another part of uh, if we look at this under the proper understanding of works, uh, apply this to Paul talking about Abraham's faith being imputed to him as righteousness. If you go back and you look at the whole conversation, you will see that Abraham's faith is imputed to him as righteousness as opposed to this boast where the, the Judaizers were committing in keeping the, the uh, ceremonial laws. So, And you have James, which people think is a contradiction, saying uh, that Abraham was saved by works. But there's really no contradiction if you understand what works are being discussed here. It's not works of charity. It's not works of the religion ritual of the new covenant. It's not obedience. It's specifically just the second legislation of Mosaic law given for worshiping the golden calf. 
Mm-hmm. So let's finish up uh, chapter six, and uh, we'll read to the finish of chapter six here. The light of thy body is thy eye. If thy eye be single, thy whole body shall be lightsome. But if thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be darksome. If then the light that is in thee be darkness, the darkness itself, how great shall it be? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will sustain the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Therefore, I say to you, now, let, me, let me interrupt you. Let Go me ahead. interrupt you Go ahead. just one second. Mm-hmm. This speculation of mammon, and I've heard this um, speculated back and forth. Now, obviously, in the in the micro sense, mammon refers to money. But I've heard it said there are some traditions within the church that says mammon is actually a demon. It's actually a demon yeah. of greed. Do you do you buy yeah, that's what I've heard? Okay, so you. You buy that. Okay. All right. Sorry for the interruption. Please continue. We have different demons who are responsible for different things, and that's one of the traditions. I guess you can – it can apply in multiple ways, but because we're just talking about the establishment of virtues here and how we, how we get there. So you can say money. You could say, you could say basically anything that keeps you from God. Right. So – it goes on, therefore I say to you, be not solicitous for your life, what you shall eat, nor for your body, what you will, what you shall put on. It is the life more than the meat. Uh, it is not the life more than the meat, and the body more than the raiment. Behold the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor do they reap, nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are not you of much more value than they? And which of you, by taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? And for raiment, why are you solicitous? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They labor not, neither do they spin. But I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed as one of these. And if the grass should, uh, of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, God doth so clothe. How much more you, O ye of little faith, be not solicitous, therefore saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the heathen seek, for your Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God, and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. Be not therefore solicitous for tomorrow, for the tomorrow will be solicitous for itself. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. So we need to seek the kingdom of God over everything else. And and Jesus has said this kingdom is actually inside us. So along with all these things Jesus described before, all the virtues, uh, the beatitudes and everything, where this kingdom is, is where we express these virtues through, you know, in, in our own conscience, in our way of life. 
And so we're called to practice sound mind and sound body. We're here for less than a blink of an eye compared to eternity. And in that blink, we choose God or we choose self. We can't choose two masters. So we can't choose to be lackadaisical about sin and at the same time profess to be living as a Christian, which means we emulate Christ. We follow his path, his life, his charity, and his purity, his holiness. Mm-hmm. So as for the single eye, the Greek for simple could be translated as, as single, or if your eye be simple, which would mean sound and undivided. So we again can see here, uh, as, as in the, the, the chapter before, uh, a different way, uh, the lesson against sophistry. And your yes being yes, and your no being no, as, as we discussed in the last chapter. So this is also a great structure for people who are outside uh, the, the truth. A way of thinking when you're approaching things that go against your previous preconceptions that can create turmoil in your mind as you begin to understand them. So, and you, if you put all this together, it's just easier to find truth in, the, in this type of deep humility. So a point in time where as a Christian, you are called to love and humility and accepting truth as is revealed to the soul. And uh, I don't see how cognitive dissidence can be overcome without this state of mind. Right. So we're back to talking about this theme of cognitive dissonance again. And, you know, imagine the stress created when an entire society is built upon this construct. And you don't really have to imagine it. We live in it today. People wake up every morning to this living nightmare of either being slaves to money, power, sex, or slaves to the people who are slaves to money, power, and sex. We have an entire society fashioned into this image of idolatry, and the same results I described minutes ago in microform are now taking shape in a large scale. Now, I can remember in my lifetime where religion was held up as the ideal. It was at least given faint praise in words. Now the largest religious preference in America is, quote, none, unquote. And open practical Catholicism is reviled among all the political classes, all the social classes, all the races and ages, basically every demographic group. Now, this shouldn't shock us. So let me give you one example. Luke gave the example of the eye as the light of the body. Well, what are the images the eye sees today? How many sexual images? How many images of wealth, expensive homes, fast cars? fine clothing, alcohol and drugs, power. How many images of the poor, lost and forsaken? This is the cognitive dissonance of love thy neighbor versus push thy neighbor out of the way so you can get to the front of the line. Luke, is it any wonder that mental illness is rampant in our country with this kind of mental conflict going on uh, where a person's Lust for power, their avarice, their greed, uh, their their lust for all of these addictive things is at conflict with their conscience and the master that they should be serving. You, you simply cannot serve these two masters. One must give way to the other, and yet 
We've built an entire ethos in this country um, that is called the so-called Protestant worth ethic that proposes exactly that, that it's basically you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be uh, worldly and still be saved. You can be worldly and still be a Christian. That is exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about this cognitive dissonance, correct? Yeah, and when we when God establishes church, church, He did so at that time where there was a radical change in consciousness in in living the truth. It it was easier to to do so through this radical change in consciousness because you lived it through love, and you lived the moral and natural law through love. Therefore, He gave power to the moral and natural law. So when people separated from the authority of the church, after a while they begin to fall back into this fallen nature just by the first act of separation from authority. You're beginning to separate from the graces God established. You're separating from the sacramental life. And you still have this law on your conscience at the same time. So as a separation uh, and to flourish, you see entropy. You see going from organization to disorganization. And then it even came to the point where you had the libertines, where they did everything purposely, everything against uh, the moral and natural law. And you had these two planes of, you had these two roads. You had this road of Protestantism, and you had this road of, you know, secularism, where it came to the point where, you have Nietzsche say God is dead. And now because of this liberalism, you have this complete separation from the moral and natural law. And you're almost having a separation from conscience because that conscience is being so suppressed by self and making yourself a God that you no longer feel it. You know, right. you already went through over and over and over again processes of, of tamping it down just through your own ego. But now to the point where it's it's like what uh, Christ said about, you know, uh, uh, more demons coming back into the soul than were previously there. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so it's and, and this is the state of our world today. Because when you deliberately uh, suppress what you know is to be right in favor of what you want in the moment, uh, mental health, mental illness cannot help but be the result. That kind of stress on the mind eventually has to result in in some form of mental illness, be it acute mental illness or or severe mental illness. And I and I talked to trained psychotherapists that have explained this to me that. You know, a person who lives basically a life of a of a narcissist or a sociopath eventually will drive themselves crazy trying to reconcile these two images of self in their own mind till they eventually do actually become mentally ill. And it comes back to love is letting go of fear. Those two yeah. emotions, love or fear. And so that was the end of chapter six. We'll, we'll move on to chapter seven, and we'll start with one through five. 
And we read from Jesus' words, Judge not that you may not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you met, it shall be measured to you again. And why seest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and seest not the beam that is in thy own eye? Or how saith thou to thy brother, let me cast the mote out of thy eye, and behold, a beam is in thy own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thy own eye, and then shalt thou shalt see the cast about the mote of thy brother's eye. There you go with that word hypocrite again. So well, not Jesus, only that, not only hypocrite again, but hyperbole again. Imagine yeah, people walking yeah. around with a plank hanging out of their eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could go into that. Call no man father. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Swallow a camel, strain out a gnat. Yeah. <laughs> So Jesus isn't saying no one should judge here. He's saying no one should judge in hypocrisy. Without judgment, there is no order. There, there's no finding of guilt. So Jesus is saying if they do not listen to even church, treat them as heathens and publicans, this is a judgment in which guilt is found and a sentence is acted out. So Jesus is not going to contradict himself. You have to look at the deeper message of what he's saying. Uh, in life, we cannot escape the process of judgment. Uh, when even uh, uh, we even judge the behavior of our children, so in judgment we must always set an example. Jesus is also addressing the perfect judgment of God, who sees the heart, one who will have a perfect vision of every time rejected truth through our lifetime that may have led us on a clearer path, and every time through love of Christ, we follow the path. But of course, there are also times when we should pick our battles and mind our own business in order to keep peace. We also don't want, don't want to be nosy. <laughs> so we'll move on to Matthew 7, 6 here. This is... Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before the swine, lest perhaps they trample them under their feet. Turning upon you, they tear you. Here, after teaching us about our super substantial bread, Jesus is telling us to protect what is sacred. This also shows us the foundation of what would later be understood as the discipline of the secret. Now, during the times of the apostles, uh, and before, uh, dogs actually ran in packs, and they were considered vile creatures. Uh, it was sacrilegious to give to the dogs what was sacrificed on the altar in the temple. And, of course, pigs have no use for pearls of great wisdom. We're talking about the, the, uh, the spiritual understanding uh, of our faith here, that if it was presented you know, before the Jews or the Romans, you know, they, they they couldn't understand it, you know. And uh, so God is saying to be, Christ is saying to be a little bit cautious here, you know, or else you're going to get in trouble. So do not give that which is holy. And uh, I, I forgot where I got this, but uh, I will just say I didn't write it, but it, it's a good explanation. And uh, in quotes, that which is holy, 
the words point to the flesh, which has been offered for sacrifice, the holy thing. Look at Leviticus 22, 6 and 7, Leviticus 22, 10, Leviticus 22, 16, of which no unclean person or stranger and a fortorier, no unclean beast, was to eat. So to give that holy flesh to dogs would have seemed to the devout Israelite the greatest of all profanations. So with that, we can understand of our baptism and incorporate the teachings of the early church into this. We should see that unclean can uh, actually be referred to as unbaptized in, in, in this new revelation of going from type to heavenly reality. And we can confirm this actually through the Didache. And for those who uh, haven't been in, in the uh, radio programs in the past, Didache was called the Teaching of the Apostles. It was written about 70 AD, even before some of the apostles uh, died. So uh, it's basically the first catechism in the Catholic Church. Yeah, just let so, me just say something about that, about the Didache. Right. Our friend William Hemsworth is actually going through it. Uh, this past Saturday was his second Saturday. He's actually going through the Didache uh, chapter by chapter. So if you want to go learn about the Didache, go back in the archives and listen to William Hemsworth's uh, Bird Toasted Coffee program. It's a very good breakdown of exactly what the Didache say, says and what it teaches. No, definitely, definitely. So in Chapter 9, uh, it refers to the Thanksgiving Eucharist. Uh, Eucharist means Thanksgiving. So now concerning the Thanksgiving Eucharist, thus give thanks. First concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Uh, here's, here's what we're talking about. It goes on. But let no one eat or drink of your thanksgiving, Eucharist, but they who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord said, give not what is holy to the dogs. Right. So you have it right there, the very first uh, reference to what Christ possibly meant outside of the Bible, but in the teaching of the apostles. So, and when it comes to this the discipline of the secret, uh, I'm, I'm going to read from the actual Catholic Encyclopedia here. Theologically, a theological term used to express the custom which prevailed in the earliest ages of the church by which the knowledge of the more intimate mysteries of the Christian religion were carefully kept from the heathen and even from those who were undergoing instruction in the faith. The custom itself is beyond dispute, but the name for it is comparatively modern and does not appear to have been used before the controversies of the 17th century, when special dissertations bearing the title De Disciplina Arcania 
uh, was published both on the Protestant and the Catholic side. So uh, the Catholic uh, Encyclopedia goes on. The origin of the custom must be looked for in the recorded words of Christ, give not what is holy to the dogs, neither cash or pearls before the swine, lest perhaps they trample them under their feet, and turning upon you, they tear you. While the practice in apostolic times is sufficiently vouched for by St. Paul, assurance that he fed the Corinthians as little ones in Christ, giving them milk to drink, not meat, because they are not yet able to bear it. With this passage, we compare also Hebrews 5, 12, 14, where the same illustration is used, and it is declared that solid food is for the perfect, for them who by custom have their senses exercised to the discernment of good and evil. Although the origin of the custom is thus to be traced back to the very beginnings of Christianity, it was desirable to bring the learners slowly and by degrees to a full knowledge of the faith. A convert from heathenism could not profitably assimilate the whole Catholic religion at once, but must be taught gradually. It would be necessary for him to learn first the great truth of the unity of God, and not until this had sunk deep into his heart would he safely be instructed concerning, uh, concerning the Blessed Trinity. Otherwise, thryism would have been the inevitable result. So again, in times of persecution, it was necessary to be very careful about those who offered themselves for instruction and who might be spies wishing to be instructed only that they might be uh, betrayed. So the doctrines to which the reserve was more especially applied were those of the Holy Trinity and the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. The Lord's Prayer too was jealously guarded from the knowledge of all who were not fully instructed. With regard to the Holy Eucharist and the Lord's Prayer, some relics of the practice still survive in the church. The Mass of the Catechumens, the earlier portions of the Eucharist service to which learners and neophytes were admitted, and which consisted of prayers or readings for the Holy Scripture, sometimes included a sermon, is still quite distinguishable though the custom no longer survives in the Western liturgy, as it does in the Eastern of formally bidding the uninitiated to depart when the more solemn part of the service is about to begin. So also the custom of saying the Lord's Prayer in silence in all public services, except the latter part of the Mass, when catechumens would, according to the ancient use, no longer have been present, owes its origin to this discipline. The earliest formal witness to the custom seems to be Tertullian. And again, speaking of heretics, he complains bitterly that their discipline is lax in this respect and that evil results have followed. Among them, it is doubtful who is a catechumen and who is a believer. All can come in alike. They hear side by side and pray together. Even heathens, if any chance to come, that which is holy they cast to the dogs, the pearls, although they are not real ones, they fling to the swine. You see this a lot, and uh, Protestants try to use it against Catholics, where in a lot of the uh, early church fathers, they refer to the sacraments as the symbols. So mm-hmm. in one sense, they're referring to uh, sacraments as symbols and letters that would be traveling outside the church. 
and in others they refer to them as the body and blood of Christ and letters that would be inside the church. So it's also hard right. to distinguish where these letters are going. I mean, what's in the minds of the people who are writing them? All we have is just accumulation of information. Right. So with respect to judging, the emphasis Jesus is making is in judging rightly and fairly and without hypocrisy. Uh, the image of trying to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye while well, you have a wooden beam in your own eye or straining out a, knot and, a gnat and swallowing a camel. Then Jesus says something that should truly frighten all of us and sober us up. He says this, Luke. He says, the measure by which you measure will be measured out against you. Now, I don't want Jesus bringing that measuring tape out when I'm, a, when I'm there in my judgment. I want that measuring tape to stay in the desk. This is another way of saying that those who show mercy will be shown mercy and, again, shows that our actions are held to account. So it once again proves that it's conditional. And we see this in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So with respect to not giving holy things to dogs, the abject absurdity of Sol Scriptura is laid bare here. And I really believe we're on the leading edge of the demise of Protestantism as a result. Let me explain. The reason Christianity and politics, American politics in general, could coexist for so long is because they didn't seem to threaten each other. And this began to gradually change as forces most open, more openly hostile to religion and morality have begun to emerge in the body, body politic. We see this with the LGBTQ uh, community, for example. Specific measures like the Johnson Amendment that restricted the political activity of churches and nonprofits and the decree banning prayer in schools were just the beginning. The battle lines between the secular and the religious are now clearly drawn, and they're frankly scary. But on the flip side of that, it has had the result of culling the herd, so to speak, and it's brought to the fore a church whose core is becoming smaller and smaller, but also more and more devout. And only now are many people really able to make sense of this image of the holy inside and the dogs outside. The Eucharist in the Catholic Church is the center of that conflict and the violence worldwide against Catholicism is like Nero rising from the grave. So in the end, the truth of Catholicism and the life of the church rises from the blood of the martyrs and the words of Christ bring true with respect to the dogs. They will trample what is holy underfoot and then turn and tear us apart. Thus, the progress of, of faith will take more courage and will be completed with more difficulty, which in turn, paradoxically, gives it, gives it more power to transform and conquer. And I just want to say that those listening to the live stream were about to lose you, but come back and listen to the archive we still got another hour to go in the archive to get all this in. Uh, please continue. So let's go on to Matthew 7, 7 uh, through, uh, uh, looks like 12. So ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. 
Or what man is there among you of whom, if his son shall ask bread, will he reach him a stone? Or if he shall ask him a fish, will he reach him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will you, your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? All things, therefore, whosoever you would that men should do to you, do you also to them. For this is the law and, and the prophets. So the context is on, and on prayer and seeking the kingdom of God. Uh, after Jesus told us that we should not focus on worldly matters, he's referring to asking for gifts of spiritual matters. It is these gifts that God, God gives us. And you ask for wisdom and understanding and the gift to be able to communicate to others so that they feel the love of Christ and, and truth through you. You ask that you are given the grace to be able to live a strong, virtuous life, denying sin a hold on the soul. You do this while you knock, you, while you pray. And it is these gifts that God wants to give us and is just waiting for us to ask because he, because we're not referring to anything materialistic here. We're referring to everything that makes us holy and gives us the ability to express God uh, to man. So this also, again, it simplifies the process of removing the cognitive dissonance so that you can move away from false preconceptions into eternal truths. Uh, we, move, we move on to nine. Jesus says, Are what man is there among you of whom, if his son shall ask bread, will he reach him a stone? Or if he shall ask him a fish, will he reach him a serpent? So if you're asking the Heavenly Father for the goodness of bread, then he's going to give you what is good. He is not going to give you a serpent. Don't ask for temporal material things uh, that do not nurture the eternal soul and live in piety uh, of thought. So, and in the next verse, Jesus shows us our, our path to holiness in, in the sacramental life. Uh, Matthew seven thirteen, uh, we read, Enter ye in, the, in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there are who go in thereat. How narrow is the gate, and straight is the way that leadeth to life, and few there are that find it. So if we take into our minds the whole image of the new covenant, looking at the sacramental life of the apostolic church was living, then we can see this entrance onto the narrow road, into the narrow gate, where, where wide is the road that leads to destruction outside of this. Uh, this entrance begins as baptism in the sacramental life and obedience of faith, living the Beatitudes in our process of transforming grace through which we are saved. Uh, since Satan can mimic miracles, casting out demons and prophecy, Jesus tells us if you do these things and do not do the will of my Father, then I never knew you. So the narrow road is the will of the Father in the sacramental life 
and wide is that road that leads to destruction and wide is the road where Satan will mimic miracles, casting out demons and prophecy to keep people in a heretical faith and wide is the road, especially for those outside of Christianity altogether. Um, we talked about Matthew uh, 7.21 already, and how Satan will create miracles to keep people in a heretical faith. Yet right before we were told about this uh, need for obedience, Jesus said uh, through Matthew in Matthew 17 and 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in, in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are raven wolves. By the fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs, or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and the evil tree bringeth forth uh, evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can an evil tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree bringeth forth bringeth not forth good fruit, shall be cut down, and shall be cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. So, to put this bluntly, faith alone, scripture alone, once saved, always saved, the diabolical deception of being born again separate from baptism is good example of false prophets and bad fruit. And Satan will give these false prophets miracles, prophecy, and casting out demons in order to keep people in this heretical faith and to keep them away from obedience to the Father through disobedience to the new covenant, the sacramental life with bishops, priests, and deacons. And, and like we said, Paul said, obey your prelates who have the rule over you for the watch of your souls. And Paul would have called it an abomination uh, to obey prelates, uh, wolves in sheep clothing of another congregation outside of the one James the Council of Jerusalem referred to as the reestablished kingdom of David. Yeah. Luke, I want, I want to speak about the difficulty in apprehending what's being spoken here because a lot of people get this wrong to their detriment it really sounds like jesus is saying if you have faith and you believe and you knock and you ask and all these things that all these good things are going to happen to you no bad thing will ever happen to you that's not what jesus is saying at all what Jesus is saying is that for the person who has faith, this is the message of Romans 8.28, is that all things work together for the person who has faith for good. So sometimes the bad things that happen in life, God allows because he's, he's using those for a greater purpose. Now, I love what my good friend Dr. Fred Boley says on this. He said, because there's a companion verse, I think it's in Luke, that where Jesus says if the son asked for an, an, an egg that you know he would, wouldn't be given a scorpion. I love what my good friend Fred Boley says on this. He said, sometimes an egg looks like a scorpion. This, <laughs> is the this is the paradox of Christianity that Jesus goes into so much. Listen to this, Luke. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. We enter through the narrow gate, the rocky road, the denial of self, the carrying of the cross. Jesus at no point promises to save us from these things, but he promises to save us by these things and through these things. Jesus says he who finds his life will lose it, 
but he who loses it for my sake will find it. This is why Jesus, this is why the Christian faith cannot be the nice little comfortable, we can't look at Jesus as a nice little comfortable religious leader that gets along with the world. The world says not only can you have anything you want, but you're actually entitled to it. Jesus doesn't promise that. Jesus promises you pain, suffering, persecution, hardship, and humiliation, and then ultimately forsaking the world, eternal happiness. Well, Luke, that message doesn't sit well with the world. So you either have to choose to create a Jesus that gets along better with the world. You either choose to follow this message or you have to create a Jesus that gets along better with the world. Well, enter the Protestant Jesus who teaches that the fruit of the tree means nothing. Only the faith of the tree. Now, is our way harder? You better believe it's harder. In fact, it often seems impossible. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't talking about removing the trials. Jesus is talking about giving us strength to deal with the trials. This is the reassurance that Jesus is giving here. God, I do this. I don't have the strength. Ask and you shall receive. I'm lost, God. I don't know what to do. Seek, and you shall find. I have no way forward here. All my ways are closed. Knock, and it shall be open to you. This is a message of trial, a message of trial and perseverance, Luke. It's not a message of, oh Lord, please, I'm knocking. Give me a new Ferrari. <laughs> well, every, everything needs to be seen, you know, through that blink of an eye compared to eternity. I mean, in that blink of an eye, we choose God or we choose self. And one thing Catholics have as just, you know, a beautiful uh, way of, of way of looking at things is how we look at suffering. And unless you believe that the mystical body of Christ is, is more than a metaphor, unless you believe it's a heavenly reality, and and you're able to see this this whole body, this whole, this whole communion of saints and everything. Uh, the body, uh, the, those who pass on do not, you know, separate from the body. They become more alive in the body. Uh, and so even in this idea of suffering, Paul says, I make it for what is lacking in my, uh, uh, in the suffering of Christ in my own flesh for his body, which is the church. So even in the suffering in in, in the body, uh, we're we're given these gifts, and these gifts give us the opportunity to unite our prayers in in that suffering. And so God has ways to refine us and make us holy, and not just through you know the gifts of virtues and things when we ask for virtues, right. but from our actual suffering. Well, think about this, Luke, and people have asked me, what is the one thing that you would point to to say why you're a Catholic rather than a Protestant, or why you're a Catholic versus any other religion? I always come back to this. Our faith is the only faith that makes any sense out of suffering. Because if you're a Protestant and you believe that we're we're saved by faith alone, well, then why does God allow suffering in my life? Because if my suffering has no value, Luke, then God is a sadist. <laughs> he's, he's allowing me to suffer strictly for his own. Oh, it's true. He's allowing me to suffer strictly for his own entertainment 
it doesn't have any value. It doesn't do anything for me. So it must be strictly for his entertainment. He's a sadist. Uh, well, you know, but if you look at it from the vantage point of a loving and merciful God, then you look, then you see a God that doesn't want me to suffer, but understands that it's the price of something bigger. That understands that, uh, and you look when you when when you look at that, now you see purgatory in a in a in a much larger sense. In fact, Jesus actually says this to Sister Faustina about the souls in purgatory. He says, my, my mercy doesn't want this, but my justice demands it, that the souls must atone for, they must make atonement to my justice. Well, if our suffering has no value, how then how, how can you make atonement for anything? Yeah, a little more... Uh, uh, Couple more points on the on the purgatory when when Paul in Hebrews twelve twenty two talks about this you know we have come to Mount Zion in New Jerusalem included in that is the spirits of the just made perfect well being made perfect is a process so they're going from imperfect to perfect so in this spiritual step from imperfection to perfection they're being cleansed of everything that is self. Because, you know, if we look at ourselves and think that we're going to go straight to straight to into an eternal unity with perfection, you know, from one second to the next, is to either think that God's perfections aren't that great or our, perfect, or our, our state of being is. And that makes no sense, you know, mm-hmm. because... And we're always in sin while we are in the flesh. And so we have to be perfected, you know. And this, you know, purgatory, being purged, is a suffering that uh, is is the greatest joys of the universe because as you are suffering and as you are being purified, there is no other, you know, thought than where you are going unity with God in perfect joy. So the sufferings in purgatory are are joys greater than all the joys on earth because you have right. perfect knowledge of what's next. There's no right. doubt. There's just perfect knowledge of the joy you're about to receive. Right. It's it's like being woken up in the morning when it was pitch black by somebody turning the lights on. <laughs> the light is a shock to your eyes. You can't your eye you can't you literally can't gaze upon the light until a few minutes when your eyes adjust to it. Your eyes adjust to be able to look upon the light. Well, think of this image of somebody staring into the sun. If you can't stare into the sun for, for you know, more than six seconds, and, and yet you're going to walk into heaven? <laughs> un, uh, That's a great unclean, analogy. But That's unclean, a great analogy. You're going to walk into heaven and behold... He who is light himself, <laughs> a billion times brighter than the sun. Second thing that I want to point, the second analogy that I want to give is this image that we're adding to the suffering of Christ. That we that that, that we think the suffering of Christ is is insufficient. On the contrary, 
is only the suffering is of Christ that gives my suffering any value. That's when I hear people say, well, it wasn't the divine Jesus that died on the cross. It was only the human Jesus. Well, if that's the case, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in trouble. But it was a divine Jesus that died in suffering. So just as when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, he gave supernatural, attached supernatural power to the water. Well, when Jesus suffered and died, he attached supernatural power to suffering and death. So that by our suffering and death, united to his suffering and death, we can overcome and atone for our own sin and merit heaven. Not by our own uh, grace, but by the grace that he merited at Calvary. And God wants us to be with him in purpose. And if we are not completely separated from our own ego, then we would be with him in guilt. Well, speak for yourself. I'm I'm perfectly separated from my own ego. <laughs> you know. On that note, let's move on. <laughs> I once I once won I once won an award for humblest man of the year. I wore the badge and they took it away. So. <laughs> so and after Matthew has established the, the coming of the Messiah, the, the universal kingdom of both Jews and Gentiles, the bread from heaven in the heavenly Eucharist, uh, the Eucharistic liturgy, the walk of the Christian in the Beatitudes, and warning of false prophets outside the church, uh, it begins to teach us that God wants us to live in, in a house built on rock. Uh, there's, there's only one. So you right. find the true faith by faith and practice going back to Christ. So in Matthew 7:24 we read, again to read, Everyone therefore that heareth these my words and doth them shall be likened to a wise man that built his house upon a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew. And they beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded on a rock. And everyone that heareth these my words and doth them not shall be like a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was fall thereof. So we see here we see here a contrast between hearing and doing, between saying you're a Christian and living as a Christian. Uh, uh, a litmus test, per, per se, for a, a Christian's path to truth and, and doing, acting on truth as it is revealed to the soul, and not living in, in obedience to the faith of the sacramental life in the reestablished kingdom of David is building your house on sand, not rock, not following the narrow road it is, is building on sand. So it is separation from the narrow road that keeps us from Satan's preternatural deceptions. So it is sand that is easily washed away in the rain. It is the constraint of the wise man and the fool, and faith alone destroys holy fear. Therefore, the scripture tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is prudence. Uh, of course, this is not, you know, a... You know, your fear for your life. It's a fear of disappointing a benevolent father, a right. father who we love, you know, in this our is a, God. 
other. This is what the church refers to as the difference between servile fear and filial fear. Yes, yes. Uh, after Matthew shows us this teaching, he emphasizes who the teaching is from. Uh, in Matthew 7, we'll start at Matthew 7, 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had fully ended these words, the people were in admiration at, at his doctrine, for he was teaching them as one having power and not of the scribes and the Pharisees, or one right. who was God. Right. And another point of emphasis here that goes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago. Notice Jesus doesn't say if the rain falls. <laughs> it's when the rain <laughs> falls, when fall, the people. storms come. It's going to come. The sure thing here in life is the storm. Now, whether you have the umbrella or not, that's that's your decision. Whether you're in a hand, house of sand or a house of rock, that's your decision. But the storm is coming. Be you know we don't you don't know what form the storm will take, when it will hit, how severe it will be. But but uh, Jesus says it's going to rain on the just and the unjust. So this this, this again this this utopian idea that being a Christian shields us from all harm and ad- adversity, nothing could be further from the truth. And if you look at that, you know, that image of the narrow road, and you look at the power of Satan, you go back and you read the church fathers, uh, particularly a Justin Martyr, and in his first apology, basically can be described as Satan created paganism to keep people from Catholic truth. You look at the history of you know the images of the gods. You know it, it's right there. Yeah, and you know you had food of the god become one to the god. You had triune gods. You had gods who are uh, queen mothers. Uh, this over and over and over again. You, you have these images. And Justin Martyr is saying that was all created by Satan to keep you from the Catholic Church. Right. So, and and his intelligence is preternatural. So people think that they could, you know, somehow outsmart Satan. That's impossible. And right. the only thing that, the only way to overcome Satan is through humility and obedience. And that's why uh, Christ established this narrow road of the sacramental life and a practice of holiness. So we're looking straight ahead. We're on the road. Yet all these other denominations are picking and choosing from the Bible and creating all these other roads. And Satan is right there at every single turn to take them farther and farther from the truth. Yeah, you're so you're so absolutely right. Not only is it true in this image of Sola Scriptura with with all the other people that have ever gotten read the Bible for 2,000 years got it wrong, but I'm going to get it right. <laughs> the arrogance that, that's you know, involved there is, is incredible. But even within Catholicism, when I talk to people that say, oh, man, I can't believe, I, I, you know, I messed up again. Why? Why do you can't believe that you messed up again? That's what, you walk into the, the, the devil is a, is a chained dog. You walked into his yard again, and you got bit. Why does that surprise you? (laughs) (laughs) If you don't want to get bit, don't walk into his yard. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, well, I don't know. Are you going to go to confession? Well, you know, I don't know. I got to get strong before I can go to confession. No, 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 no. 
You don't get strong to go to confession. You go to confession to get strong. See, you keep losing the battle because you think it's you versus the devil. That's a fight you're going to lose every time. It's not you versus the devil. It's God versus the devil. You're cooperating. When my prayer life changed dramatically in my life, Luke, when I stopped promising God all the wonderful things that I was going to do for him, and I started realizing that what I needed to do was ask him to show me the wonderful things that he can do through me. That when you start realizing it's a zero-sum game, that if, if Luke's fighting the devil, the devil's going to win every time. If John's fighting the devil, the devil's going to win every time. That's a fight we can't win. Uh, but if it's God fighting the devil, well, that's a whole different that's a whole different situation. <laughs> and he gives us Mary as the perfect image of humility. Yeah, and right. uh, that that there teaching us that humility is is a great defense against Satan. So you uh, chapter eight. And uh, we'll start at verse 1. And when he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and adored him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus stretched forth his hand, touched him, saying, I will be thou made clean. And forthwith his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith to him, See thou tell no man, but go, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift which Moses commanded for a testament unto them. So Matthew shows us that Jesus is God, who could heal at will. The Jerome commentary points to uh, ten miracles. It says there are nine miracles, periscopes, but ten individual miracles. The raising of the dead girl is sandwiched into the story of the women with uh, hemorrhage. The series of ten miracles is often thought to correspond to a series of the ten plagues, which Moses and Aaron caused in Egypt as the precondition of liberation from bondage. So Matthew breaks up the monotony of this series with buffer periscopes uh, in Matthew 8.18, uh, we'll, we'll get to this in 22.9, and uh, he shortens them and strips away novelistic detail, and being a cerebral type, uh, drains away strong emotion. Positively, he shapes them into a, a paradigm uh, conversation that stressed four themes, Christology, or the author of Jesus, faith, discipleship, and soteriology. So, even even in this idea of of, of these uh, plagues and, and looking at them in relationship to the different miracles is is pretty fascinating. If we go back to our you know the first chapter when we were discussing how Jesus is the true Moses, bringing his the people uh, uh, into the true Exodus, crossing the true Red Sea of baptism and establishing the true uh, Passover in the Mass. And right. just over and over again, he fills us with these themes. Yeah, well, emphasizing, first of all, emphasizing on the on the fact that Matthew is showing Jesus as God uh, with respect to the actions of the le- leper, the Greek word here that is used is proskuno, 
which means to fall down prostrate with the forehead touching the ground. Now, anyone, any first century Jew would have recognized this clearly as an act of worship. And this is a real problem for those who deny Christ's divinity, because if Christ is not God, he would have to to rebuke the the leper at that point. Because the leper is not just bowing before him in respect. He's prostrating himself before Jesus. Secondly, notice that what Jesus did not want it known as at the time among the people, he told the person to go to the priest and make the prescribed offering commended by Moses. So Jesus is affirming the priesthood and he's affirming the authority of Moses. So this kind of Jesus himself is blowing up the Jesus alone paradigm. That's the irony of ironies <laughs> here. So um, I also like your theme of the four points, uh, the four themes. Uh, I think it's critical. It almost kind of goes hand in hand with the four persons theme that's of our apostolate. Um, how can one have faith without recognizing the authority? And how can one have the author- or recognize the authority and not obey the authority? And then how can one obey the authority without discipline? And how can one gain discipline without being taught and formed? This is why we have to reemphasize Jesus' admonition, go and show yourself to the priest. So Jesus is affirming, affirming the structure that faith in Jesus isn't simply, uh, you know, I, I believe that you're my Savior. I believe that you've come, you know, to to save me from my sin. Here, Jesus is telling us that if we are, if we do have faith, we are to submit to the authority of the church. And yeah, we'll see this more when we uh, get to the chair of Moses too. Mm-hmm. So, which is uh, fascinating comes comes to the authority, but uh, this this seems to be a little bit of a precursor toward it. Yep. So so. Let's go on. We'll look at Matthew uh, 8, 5 through 13 now. So, and and when he had entered into Capernaum, there came to him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy and is grievously tormented. And Jesus saith to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion making answer said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof but only say the word, my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man subject to authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to this, go, and he goeth. And then to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus, hearing this, marveled, and said to them that followed him, Amen, I say to you, I have not found so great faith in Israel, and I say to you that many shall come from the east and west, shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the exterior darkness, being a gnashing of teeth. And Jesus saith to the centurion, Go, and as thou hast believeth, so it uh, will be done to thee. And the servant will yield at the same hour. So the centurion is an equivalent uh, of a captain. He had uh, many men underneath him, but he also saw Christ as a superior, way superior, to put it mildly. Uh, 
we hear something that is said at every Holy Mass before we receive the Eucharist. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant shall be healed. This is the depths uh, of our faith expressed here uh, in the Eucharist. We are professing in the Eucharist, and the centurion's faith is so strong that he believed Jesus did not even need to be present for his uh, miracles to occur. So Jesus responds to our faith, if you believe in the Eucharist, and his and Jesus hearing this marveled and said to them that followed him, amen, I say to you, I have not found so great faith in Israel. So this faith that we have to have to be Catholics is, of course, grace given freely, but it's it's something to contemplate, you know, how deep this faith has to be. I mean, just, Mm -hmm. just to believe in the Eucharist. So the centurion understood this, uh, that his earthly power did not compare to the spiritual power of Christ and submitted in humility. If the centurion was told by Christ that his body was true food, but I, I think the centurion probably would have been Jesus' word. Just like when Peter said, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right. I think it's important to to kind of revisit this through the vantage point of a first century Jew, through the mindset of a first century Jew. And then you realize that what Jesus is doing here is scandalous. <laughs> the Jews were quite sure of their own election. They were quite sure of their own holiness. And Jesus here is holding up a pagan as an example of faith, just as he did with the Good Samaritan. And when he had solved the wound by telling the religious of the day that some of them would be cast into the outer darkness. Uh, Luke, this was an outrage for him to say this to the religious leaders of the day. You can see why they were so, you know, why they reacted with such hostility and anger. We see this same imagery of the weeping and gnashing. And uh, we see the imagery of the uh, no one shall put new wine into old wineskins. And we take from this, and as Catholics, living the sacramental life, we can see this as our baptism into the marriage feast of the Lamb. So, it's uh, you know, we, we're able to have these incredible images due to living the sacramental life, the narrow road. Right. So, like the end of that, uh, uh, round 8-11, well, let's, let's review that. And I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out. So, taking everything we have talked about so far when it comes to establishing the kingdom of heaven, James of the Council of Jerusalem showing us that the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church. Paul showing us its sacramental nature united to heaven above when he wrote, you have come to Mount Zion to the new Jerusalem church, of the firstborn thousands of angels, Jesus mediator, new covenant. And think, and I say to you that many shall come from the East West and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just exalted the faith of a Gentile centurion 
is he's showing how Gentiles will sit down with the patriarchs of Israel in the spiritual reality of Israel. Christ is Israel, who, who married a Gentile bride, which makes us flesh of his flesh as a spiritual Israel. So what does he say next? Uh, a sad thing, of course. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the exterior darkness. So we know this is the children of the physical bloodline of the kingdom who were not baptized into the spiritual kingdom. And why did Sarah have a miraculous birth? Because baptism is a miraculous birth. Paul writes that we are buried with him in baptism, and whom also you are risen again by the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him up from the dead. Paul tells us, not as though the word of the God is miscarried, for all not are, are is Israelites that are of Israel, neither are all they that are the seed of Abraham children, but in Isaac shall the seed be called. That is to say, not they that are children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that are children of the promise are accounted for the seed. He tells us, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male or female. This, of course, is, is the hyperbole. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are, you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise, which is mm -hmm. the family of God. So Jesus is telling us that many of the Jack line will not enter into the spiritual reality of the kingdom through baptism, which gives us entrance to the promise of Abraham fulfilled as the family of God. Not a metaphor, but a heavenly reality. Right. So Jesus here is saying the same thing that John the Baptist said. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we are children of Abraham, for God can raise up from these stones children to, Israel, uh, to, to, to Abraham. So we are the stones that God has raised up as children to Abraham. That that amazing. Like, like you said, the DNA is not what is is not what what matters here. It's the spiritual children of of Abraham. And then we see this theme repeated over and over again that we are the spiritual brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. That we are the spiritual children of Our Lady. And so we see this theme over and over again. It's just striking, Luke. Here we have Matthew opening his gospel to prove the royal bloodline of Jesus that gives him the claim to kingship. Then he shows us that Jesus is something very different and that he doesn't merely speak by the authority of God, but he possesses and wields that authority. And now he brings us to the climax where the kingship and the divinity come together to bring salvation to those who have no experience of either the kingship or the divinity. The centurion was not schooled in the Jewish tradition, nor did he know the power of the one true God. Yet he is malleable, so he's given the opportunity to cut in line, so to speak, ahead of those who spent their entire lives steeped in the faith of Abraham. I mean, this is Jesus flipping over tables here. That's <laughs> what... That's what's happening here. He's, he's turning the whole thing on on its ear, and everything that they thought was the path to salvation, they they had it wrong. 
Well, and that uh, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. They're singing out Hosanna for our King. They're looking for this, you know, this 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 physical materialist King who is going to establish another physical kingdom. Uh, the prophecy in Isaiah about the kingdom being reestablished. We move from the physical to the spiritual or the sacramental, and so they never understood the sacramental. Right. So if we move on to Matthew 8:14. So when and when Jesus was come to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying and sick with fever, and he touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and ministered to them. When evening was come, they brought to him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word. All that were he healed, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. So the first home of Jesus was first named uh, Simon Rock, <laughs> went to was, was Peter's. Uh, after Jesus heals Peter's mother uh, in law, and she obviously, feeling no side effect, gets up and starts serving them right away. So no headache, no nothing. So so uh, he began to minister to them, probably making some food for them. So then while in Peter's house, after leaving the synagogue, Jesus begins to heal uh, as many people who came through the door as, as, as the crowds built up. So in this account of Mark's gospel, uh, we read, and he healed many that were troubled with diverse diseases, and he cast out many devils, and he suffered them not to speak because they knew him. In Luke's account, we read, and devils went out from many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Son of God. And rebuking them, he suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. So in Luke's account, the demons uh, acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, acknowledging his divinity. So the demons first acknowledge Jesus' divinity in Peter's home. And, and of course, since Matthew begins to show us a prophecy fulfilled, we should read where he is taking us uh, again, which is Isaiah 53. For those who weren't uh, listening to the last couple of shows, when you look at the, some, some of the way uh, the Jews um, read from like like the Psalms, uh, they would read the first couple of verses. Then everybody knew exactly where they were going, and they simply followed through. Uh, in the example of where Christ said, uh, "From the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Well, Psalms 22 at the end of it, it, it talks about a people not yet born, and He would declare His name in a great church. So. These follow-throughs really open things up in the seamless fabric of this of this covenant history, of this marriage between an, an imperfect bride and a perfect room. So in Luke's account, the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, acknowledging his divinity. So the demons first acknowledge the Jesus' divinity in, in Peter's home. And, uh, of course, it's Matthew begins to show us a prophecy fulfilled uh, this, this is where we're going. So we'll go ahead and read it. But surely he hath borne our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and we 
thought him as it were a leper and as one struck by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our iniquities. He was bruised for our sins. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his bruises we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one hath turned aside into his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was offered because it was his own will. And he opened not his mouth. He shall be led as a sheep to the slaughter. And shall be dumb as a lamb before shearers. And shall not open his mouth. He was taken away from distress and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation. Because he is cut off out of the land of the living. For the wickedness of my people have I struck him. And he shall give the ungodly for his burial. And rich for his death. Because he hath done no iniquity. Neither was there deceit in his mouth. And the Lord was pleased to bruise him in infirmity. He shall lay down his life for sin. He shall see a long-lived seed, and the will of the Lord shall be prosperous in his hand. Because his soul hath labored, he shall see and be filled. By his knowledge shall this my just servant justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I distribute to him very many. He shall divide the spoils of the strong, because he hath delivered his soul unto death and was reputed with the wicked, and he hath borne the sins of many, and hath betrayed the transgressors. So every time every time you see those a few words for a prophecy, you want to open that up and you want to absorb it into your mind. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so many interesting elements to explore here. Let's start with the, with, with the way that Matthew ties together sickness with the active work of the devil. Now, it starts with the scene of Peter's mother-in-law, and the language is interesting. The language is intriguing here. It says the fever left her. Not the fever subsided or is reduced, but that it left her. And the Greek word is aphemi, and it's suggestive of dismissal. Like being like like being someone sent away, kind of in the sense of where Jesus, uh, where Joseph thought to dismiss Mary privately. It's not the same word, but it's in the same sense. Um, and it's it's the same language, Luke, that's used in reference to those that are possessed by the devil. He sent the devils away. He sent the illness away. Um, so this is to suggest that they were. Often one and the same. Now listen to this from to make this point. Listen to this from the second chapter of Mark's gospel. And then when they could offer, then when they could not offer him under the multitude, they uncovered the roof where he was and opening it, they let down the bed, wearing the man sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus had seen their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. There were some of the scribes sitting there and thinking in their hearts, why does this man blaspheme it? Who can forgive sins but God only? Which Jesus presently, knowing in their spirit that they thought so within themselves, said to them, why, thanks, why think you such things in your hearts? What is easier, to say the sick of the palsy, thy sins are forgiven thee, or say, arise, take up thy bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the sick of the palsy, I say to thee, arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. 
And immediately he rose and taking up his bed, went his way in the sight of all, so that all wondered and glorified God, saying, we never saw the light. And this story once again takes us into Capernaum, into the, into the town of Capernaum. And the link between this town and the demonic is strongly established. We see it over and over again in Matthew's gospel, as we mentioned before. And uh, there's a tradition, as I mentioned before, in the strong tradition in the Catholic Church, that the city of Capernaum will play very, very strongly in the in the uh, Antichrist because of this, I guess, this this strong presence of the demonic. So isn't it fascinating how Matthew is openly making the connection between illness and the oppression or even the possession by demons and how evil has our society become, and yet this notion is scoffed at today, Luke. Uh, this is especially true in the case of violent actions that are attributed to mental illness. I mean, you talk about these school shooters. Almost every single one of these school shooters has claimed to hear demonic voices. That's a fact. That's indisputable. Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter, is, is one example. When he was arrested, claimed that he was hearing voices. He was hearing demons. It's immediately dismissed as mental illness. Well, what kind of mental illness would cause a person to walk into a school and indiscriminately kill 17 people? So uh, the other thing I want to do is step back and, and contemplate how overwhelming the confusion here must have been from the perspective of first century Jew. Luke, your head had to be spinning here, <laughs> trying to fathom who this man is. And, and Matthew seems like, if I was reading this as a first century Jew, I think Matthew's out of his mind. First, he's telling us <laughs> that Jesus is a king. He's telling us he's a poor man with nowhere to lay his head. No, he's God himself. No, he's a suffering servant, a scapegoat murdered in my place. Look, put yourself in this place and try to comprehend all these swirling, seeming contradictions coming together in the identity of a singular person in a way that's not only cogent but true. I, I, I have no problem imagining that if I were in that position, my head would have exploded. Yeah, and especially since you're, uh, these Jews, you know, were students of, of the scriptures. And so they're seeing every single one of these things, even though it looks like, you know, somebody with multiple personality coming together in the image of Christ. <laughs> right. So let's move on to Matthew 8.18. Start there. And Jesus, seeing great multitudes about him, gave orders to pass over the water. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Master, I will follow thee wherever thou shalt go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air nests. But the Son of Man hath not where, hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said to him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. <clears throat> so scribes were educated leaders uh, of the Jewish community. Leaders were, were known as teachers or, or rabbi. And Jesus does not say, sure, join the crowd. He uses scribe to give a lesson uh, to the world. And 
following Jesus will not be a bed of roses. You know, as we discuss, we talk about even suffering. You know, Jesus is a prophet who was not recognized by his own people. But what we should pick up on here is Jesus referring to himself as as a son of man. And uh, what must the Jews have thought when we said this, especially those who read those scriptures? Uh, especially you read Daniel 7.13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So <laughs> Jesus is basically calling him the physical self, the physical manifestation of God in the heavens. Daniel 7.14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is of everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus is announcing his deity and still addressing the scribe that following him will, will not be easy. So same time you're saying, I'm God, but this will not be an easy course. Right. So, but think about this. Where else did Jesus declare himself to be the son of man? In John 6, when the, when the crowds rejected his call to eat his body and drink his blood, how did he respond to this lack of will? To follow the Messiah. He said, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Then would you believe? Or then would you believe that my flesh is true food? Uh, what did they see in Acts 1? Well, let's read it. When he said this, and when he had said these things, while he looked on, he was raised up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So, Right there, God proved that he was the son of man as proof that his flesh is true food. So right. his proof that he is God is his words of the Eucharist. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, good point. So, so in Matthew 8, 21, uh, start at 21, and another of his disciples said to him, Lord, Suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Uh, again, Jesus is, is showing that radical change. And to devotion, only only the prophets close to understanding. Uh, a discipleship shows much more devotion than a student or a rabbi. Uh, the phrase, let the dead bury the dead, was, was probably shocking to those who heard it. Uh, he who does not bury his dead cannot pray the Shema. Uh, the, the Shema includes uh, 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 that we have one God. So from from saying the tapilla or where the, the the phylacteries, they are separated from the priestly duties of the law. So the tapilla are the traditional Jewish prayers and the all in a box containing Hebrew text on vellum worn by Jewish men at morning prayer as a reminder to keep the law. So to let the dead bury the dead is a phrase Jesus used to show the end of the old law is needed in order to follow Christ. And Paul compliments this when he says, Now in saying a new, he hath made the former old, 
and that which decayeth and groweth old is near its end. Yeah, so the mystery continues. And at one point, he seems like he's compassionate and he's healing. And at another point, you see this this side of Jesus that seems to be cruel and cold. Follow me and let the dead bear their dead. Look, taking these hard sayings apart is, it takes work. Because every action of Jesus springs from love and leads to love. But sometimes, as Dr. Fred says, the, the egg looks like a scorpion. <laughs> I, I, suppose <laughs> the po- I suppose the point is here that if it's easy to digest and understand, then the need of faith and the growth of the faith can't materialize. Bearing the faithful departed is actually a corporal act of mercy witnessed by the great care that would be taken in his own burial when Jesus was buried, we have to admit we have to assume that we're missing something here that's not available at first at first glance. So I've heard a tradition in the church that the person who was saying I have to bury my father was actually being used in the sense of the distribution of the inheritance, like the writing of the will or something to that effect. But clearly there was something happening here that the person's actions were distracting from the work of God, something that went beyond the simple mercy, corporal mercy of a burial. But at Teaching first blush, you as well. Right, right. And he's, so it's, it's like you said, it's not something that is cruel. If you look at the deeper understanding through the 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 uh, tradition, so he's right. saying that if if you're going to follow me, you have to follow you have to separate from the letter of the law, because what did he did through for chapters one through six, he was showing the spirit of the law. Yep. Listen, folks, uh, we're about to run out of time here. We've got two hours total, so we're about to run out of time. We're going to have to continue the rest of this, finish the rest of this in the next episode, because uh, I want to make sure we get all of this in. And uh, I'm sorry I shorted us. It didn't give us enough time. Luke, would you – because we're, we're, it's literally – the program is literally going to stop recording so that it's not going to record what we say. So we're going to have to pick well, up the rest I'm- of it. I love to end with an Our Father because that's one our, you know we could pray with our Protestant brothers and sisters. So, yep. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. God bless, Luke. This is a lot of fun. I can't wait till next week. We'll pick it right up where we where we left it there, and I'll see all of you folks a week from today in our continued exploration of the Gospel of Matthew. Have a wonderful night. All right. God bless.